Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, 2 Kings chapters 13 and 14. On 2 Kings 13, the subject is the northern kingdom of Israel and their accelerating decline towards God's judgment upon them. And as the name of the Bible book implies, the story is told in the context of the secession of kings of Israel who grew ever more wicked and idolatrous and and, and thus drew their nation and their people further away from God. But for the most part, neither the leaders nor their people seem to recognize their dangerous situation. Just as the popular American fable about the frog in the kettle seeks to illustrate, one can be immersed into what seems to be an inviting, benign, comfortable, and healthy environment. However, However, if one doesn't stay alert, those seemingly comfortable and secure surroundings can turn out to be a deception and ultimately fatal. The slide from comfy to catastrophe doesn't happen in one immediate, immediately evident lurch or, or some sudden calamitous event. Over time, Small changes occur. In the case of this unsuspecting frog, what began as an ideal water temperature rose so gradually that his body adapted to the warmer and the warmer environment. He didn't sense the increasing heat. So the dangerous change went on generally unnoticed. However, at some point, that heat became great enough to silently kill So the frog succumbed, having been none the wiser, thinking everything was okay, till he breathed his last. It was like that in the northern kingdom of Israel, whereupon soon we're going to read of their exile. And there is a great lesson from this that we modern believers need to shema. We need to hear it, and we need to act upon it. Now, while books like Kings and Chronicles feel so much like primarily a long history lesson, in reality, it's the Lord showing us what disaster awaits when leaders lead their people away from strict obedience to God's laws and commands and principles. Instead, They lead them into man-made customs and philosophies and ways that are more pleasing to humans. So as a preface to today's lesson on 2 Kings 13 and 14, I want to take us on a little bit of a detour. Each new Israelite monarchy added some misguided innovation or some further deviation from God's laws and commandments which usually built upon ones his predecessors had established for their own agendas and purposes. Jeroboam 
the first king of Israel after the civil war where the, uh, the kingdom, uh, kingdom of David and Solomon were split into two pieces, well, he decided to use the Hebrew religion as a political tool so that he could gain control over his people. He naturally didn't want the citizens of his recently formed kingdom journeying south to the rival kingdom of Judah to worship at the temple in Jerusalem fearing that their continuing loyalty to the priesthood in Judah would diminish their loyalty to him. So he decided that the solution was to create two alternative worship centers in his own territory, in Dan and in Bethel. And he equipped them each with a golden calf to differentiate them from the Jerusalem temple. And he then assured his people that these golden calves were nothing but images meant to honor the God of Israel, Jehovah. No doubt there were complaints at first from those who remembered the law against graven images in God's Torah. But in a few years, as their passions subsided a bit, and with the citizenry more concerned about their everyday lives and, and matters of life in general, they convinced themselves that while worshiping an image wasn't necessarily right, it wasn't terrible. At least it was an image of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But about 30 years later, the newest king of Israel, Ahav, Ahab, well, he married a thoroughly pagan woman named Jezebel. And together they set out to convince these golden calf-worshipping Israelites to worship Baal. At first the demand was only that out of tolerance for their foreign neighbors and for the queen, that proper respect would be shown for Baal. A citizen was allowed to continue worshipping the golden calves if they chose. Now this proposition of respecting many gods while worshipping mainly one, now that met well with the oriental mind of that era. In time, however, the demands from Jezebel increased such that the northern Israelites were urged to abandon those golden calves and worship only Baal. Now, many Israelites succumbed to peer pressure and they acquiesced, but many more refused. Now, ironically, these dissenters thought of themselves as the more pious. And so they rallied in support of worshipping the golden calves as they now considered this to be the normal and proper worship of Jehovah. It only took a few years for the society of Israel to drop any thought of adhering to the Torah as its guide to righteousness or of the temple in Jerusalem as the only God-ordained place for sacrifice and instead to replace it all with man-made images and traditions that their religious authorities said was all about honoring the Lord God. But now that worshipping a golden image of a bull 
and offering their sacrifices at the cult sites of Dan and Bethel had become the accepted orthodoxy of the Hebrew religion up north, it was much easier to move to the next stage, which was to add the worship of the image of another, a different god. Thus, in but a mere 20 years, after Baal worship had been ordered by Ahab and Jezebel, the Lord gave a military commander named Jehu the task of ridding Israel of this deplorable Baal worship altogether. And if he did that, the Lord would ensconce him as the newest king of Israel. Well, Jehu obeyed God. He destroyed the Baal temples and the idols. He killed the Baal prophets and priests. He even disposed of the evil Queen Jezebel. But instead of leading Israel back to the Torah type of God worship, King Jehu merely reinstituted the Jeroboam type of golden calf worship. And of course, the pious of Israel hailed him for it. Because in their minds, he was essentially reinstituting Jehovah worship. One must understand, Jehu no doubt thought he was doing good. He most certainly believed he was doing something which God would commend, he would approve of. He would have been shocked to read these holy scriptures that we've been reading about those times and about him. He would have been shocked to see the negative light in which he is cast and the condemnation he's received. Fellow believers, as hard as it is for us to hear, Christianity has followed a similar path. And for the most part, the body of Christ is completely unaware of it. We are today far, far away, in many cases, from what the Bible teaches as proper worship of God, even though what we tend to do seems to us like the right and proper things to do. In fact, to do otherwise would seem to be like no worship at all. Perhaps even heresy. But that's because we grew up with these practices and observances. They are usual and customary in our society. They become part of us. They become familiar. So we don't question these things. Rather, we staunchly insist upon and we defend our typical Christian practices and customs as we know them to the death. We prefer social sermons that long ago replaced actual Bible teaching because it seems normal to us. We prefer allegorical Bible interpretations that can twist and turn the words of scriptures into any kind of meaning we desire because it's replaced literal, straightforward, biblical meaning. And you know what? We really like that because it makes God seem so much more appealing. It makes Christianity so flexible, if not evolutionary. Within two centuries of Yeshua's death, 
Gentiles who had little knowledge of and no allegiance to God's Torah became the new leaders of the body of Christ. And all authority was removed from the Jewish leadership of the way who had it up until that point. All that was available to these new Gentile leaders as Holy Scripture, however, was the Old Testament because there was no such thing as a New Testament yet. But because they had little or no understanding of the Hebrew culture and because they were Greek-speaking Romans who inherently saw the Jews as something foreign to them, they were uncomfortable with the Hebrew Bible as it was. And they also tended to misunderstand some of the critical passages due to lack of context. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD and by 138 AD Jews were forbidden to live there. So the center of Christianity that early on was overseen by James, the brother of Jesus, well that moved from Jerusalem into the Gentile Roman Empire and pretty soon it became centered in Rome itself. There the Roman church was born. A New Testament was created and it was canonized and it focused on the life and works of Messiah Yeshua and it incorporated the words and acts of some of his apostles primarily according to the teachings of Paul. Then another step was taken. The New Testament was given preeminence over the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament quickly became viewed as a document by and for Gentiles, while the Old Testament was framed as a document by and for Jews. And since that time, the value of the Torah and the Old Testament has been diminished by Christian leadership. But what would the Roman church use to form its rules and its doctrines if the Old Testament was no longer seen as relevant? Yeshua wasn't all that big on giving new commandments. Nor did he deal with church organization since the movement that was spawned by him didn't begin in earnest until after his death. Well, Paul was the answer. Because as a trained rabbi, he spoke in terms of do's and don'ts. And he addressed several organizational issues. Paul's influence was so great that Bible scholars dating back to the Middle Ages at times referred to the church as the Pauline church, meaning the church as defined by Paul. And it has remained so to this day, for the most part. Well, by the mid-20th century, the Old Testament was finally deemed to have such little value and relevance for Christians that some Bible versions were printed that consisted of only the New Testament. Typically, those were handed out to new believers as their first Bibles. Of course, this not-so-subtle message that the Old Testament was not only irrelevant, but perhaps even a detriment to a modern believer, well, that left its mark on the millions of new believers who saw the Bible as only the New Testament. The now deleted Old Testament, well, that was just an unneeded relic.
The next stage was that the seeker-oriented pastors, began, beginning with the Jesus movement, found it much more expedient to teach primarily the four Gospels. Since what followed was mainly a lot of rules and regulations laid down by Paul. Some of these rules and regulations were quickly becoming politically incorrect in the Western world. So with a newly refined doctrinal view that freedom in Christ meant no obligations to God, it meant no rules to follow, then Paul's writings became less relevant, less desirable, more of a burden. Thus a rather mainstream, although certainly not universal, church viewpoint that has emerged is that Christians have but one rule to follow, a rather general one called the law of love. Then, from that, the next step is where we are in 2012. It has been to put Bibles away entirely. It is not much more than a beloved symbol of our Christianity like wearing a cross around our necks or putting a fish decal on our bumpers. Bibles are often carried as a kind of identification with our faith, but they're used sparingly. Instead, we now read books about the Bible. We read books about faith. We read books about heaven. We read books about social justice. But the Bible itself... Well, it's read almost not at all. Thus today, as we Christian frogs sit near the boiling point, but we sit here blissfully unaware or unconcerned of our condition, a new phenomenon has risen up. It's what I call the Gandhi form of Christianity. That is, Gandhi once said, Jesus occupies in my heart the place of one of the greatest teachers who have had a considerable influence on my life. It's no longer the biblical Christian faith, but rather the philosophy of Jesus the good teacher that's being taught in our most liberal churches, but it's also becoming popular and is gaining traction elsewhere. That is, the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is thought to just be too old. It's too unreliable, too controversial, too hard to understand, too attuned to an ancient and extinct Hebrew culture to be taken seriously, let alone to make it applicable to a modern, enlightened Western world. So, we are reduced to a philosophical approach. What would Jesus do? And what he would do, say these modern adherents to this Gandhi Christianity, is expressed in a Gandhi-like message of pacifism, love, and tolerance. It took a very long time to get here, didn't it? But in some ways, not so long at all. It happened in a steady decline from the moment that Roman Christianity took one fatal misstep. It severed away its Hebrew faith roots, its Hebrew heritage, its Hebrew leadership, 
which together would have formed the context for our faith. But without that context, it's become a religion of, by, and for Gentiles. And each generation has played its part in leading us to our current condition. It will arrive, pretty soon I think, in a similar place of exile as did the northern kingdom. And I think it could all be summed up well by Jesus' famous comment in Matthew 7 where He says, You know, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what My Father in heaven wants. On that day many will say to Me, But Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name? Didn't we expel demons in Your name? Didn't we perform miracles in Your name? And you know, I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew You. Get away from Me, you workers of lawlessness. As Solomon said in his famous proverb, There's nothing new under the sun. So let's continue our 2 Kings 13 study now that we have some more context for understanding the importance of what we're reading and just how much we need to take this to heart. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings 13. I'm going to start at verse 20. 2 Kings 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 416. going to start at verse 20. Elisha died. They placed him in a burial cave. Now the raiding parties of Moab used to make yearly incursions into the land at the start of the year. And once it happened that just as they were burying a man, they spotted a raiding party. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's burial cave. And the, the, the moment the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Hazel, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the lifetime of Ehochaz. But Adonai was gracious. He took pity on them. He looked on them with favor because of his covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. He was not willing to destroy them. And to this day he has not banished them from his presence. Hazel, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, took his place as king. And then Yehoash, the son of Yehochaz, captured from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had captured in war from Yehochaz's father. Three times Joash defeated him, thus recovering the cities of Israel. Now we left off in our previous lesson with the reappearance of Elisha. And he is ill and he is dying. And King Joash of Israel had come to pay his respects and to ask Elisha to petition God to help Joash defeat the armies of Syria, of Aram. Now Elisha did this, and in so doing he asked Joash to shoot some arrows out of the east-facing window of his room to indicate that the target was Syria. Well, Elisha laid his own hands upon Joash's to symbolize that the Lord would be the instrument of Israel's military victory over Syria. 
However, after taking only three arrows from this full quiver and shooting them, Joash stopped, leaving several unused, thinking it was sufficient. Well, this angered Elisha because it showed how little faith he had in God supplying nearly unlimited victory. Thus, Joash would have victory in three battles with Hazael, king of Aram, but ultimately Israel, uh, Israel's army was going to suffer great loss. Well, in verse 20, the great prophet Elisha dies. He was probably around 80 years old, having served in his capacity as a prophet for the past 50 years. Now, as typical, they placed him in a burial cave. It, it, it seems, however, that at this time the Moabites would cross over into Israelite territory to, to, to raid Israel's food supply. It was at the beginning of the year, probably meaning pretty soon after Rosh Hashanah. It seems that some Israelites were in the process of holding a funeral when they spotted these marauding Moabites off in the distance and in a panic they threw the body into the burial cave where Elisha's corpse had been placed. Well, just like in our day, when saying that we bury someone upon their death, it is a general term meaning most any kind of interment, from a coffin placed under the earth, to cremation, and the ashes placed in an urn, to the body being put into a crypt. So it was the same way in this era with the Hebrews. The Hebrew word used here is gabar, and it means to bury, but not necessarily in the sense of digging a hole in the ground and putting a corpse in it. It just means a proper treatment of the dead. In fact, at this time, around 800 BC, the Hebrews usually wrapped the deceased in white linen and placed them in a burial cave. So that's what happened with Elisha. And that was the process of what was happening with this dead person who got unceremoniously thrown into Elisha's cave by his family as they hurried to leave the area to avoid the Moabite raiding party. Well, when they did, something frighteningly strange happened. When the corpse touched Elisha's bones, it sprang back into life. Now, truth be known, the meaning of this event is not agreed upon by Hebrew or Christian scholars. Some say that it was an attestation to the Lord's power over life and death. Others say it was to show that the deathbed prophecy of Elisha concerning Israel's victory of Syria lived on. Some rabbis say that Elijah had promised Elisha a double portion of holiness. And so mere contact now with Elisha's bones was sufficient to restore life to this dead person. And it proved, therefore, that Elisha had received that promised double portion. A Jewish scholar says that this was similar to the miracle that happened after Moses died. The manna, which fell on the refugees of the Exodus was done according to Moses' great merit. And his merit was so great that the life-sustaining sustaining manna continued falling even after his death. So I'm going to let you decide which of these, if any of these, seems to be the correct interpretation. Well, the final verses show us 
that Elisha's prophecy about Syria was fulfilled. Verse 22 explains that all during the days of Joash's father, Jehoahaz, the armies of Aram oppressed Israel. But God had pity on the people of Israel, and he didn't allow Hazael to consummate his victories, nor was the Lord ready to see his people exiled from the land just yet. We are told specifically that it was because of the Lord's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he allowed Israel to remain. Now let's be clear what this is referring to. It is referring to the covenant given back in Genesis 15 that guaranteed that Abraham's descendants would be given a land inheritance for their own and that that land would be Canaan. So while there were other aspects of this Abrahamic covenant about how he would be blessed with countless descendants and through him all the families of the world would be blessed and a few other promises, the centerpiece of that covenant was always about the land. Isaac didn't get a new covenant. He inherited Abraham's. Jacob didn't get a new covenant. He inherited the Abrahamic covenant that had passed down through his father, Isaac. The final words of verse, 20, uh, verse 23 translate to up to now. That is, the Lord had not cast the people of the northern kingdom away from his presence up to this point. But this is telling. Because it infers that at some point he is going to throw them out of the land and turn his back on them. In time, Hazael died. And now that both Yehochaz and Hazael were dead, the promised deliverance could occur. Thus, Joash was able to retake from Ben-Hadad, who was Hazael's son, some cities in the Transjordan that his father Yehochaz had lost some years earlier to Hazael. And in full confirmation, of God's promise to Joash since Joash had shot only three arrows the Lord gave him only three victories but had Joash been more faithful had he kept shooting those arrows when he was with Elisha there's no telling how many cities how much territory he might have won back Joash's epitaph is the story of lost opportunities of squandered blessings. Let's move on to chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, page 417 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It was in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, that Amatzia, the son of Joash, king of Yehuda began his reign. He was 25 years old when he began to rule. He ruled for 29 years in Yerushalayim. His mother's name was Yehodan from Yerushalayim. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, although not like David, his ancestor. He lived the same way as his father Joash. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and offered on the high places. Now as soon as, he, as soon as he had the kingdom firmly under his control, he put to death the servants of his who had murdered the king his father. 
But he did not put the children of the murderers to death because of what is written in the scroll of the Torah of Moses. As Adonai ordered when he said, Fathers are not to be executed for the children, nor are the children to be executed for the fathers. Every person will be executed for his own sin. He slaughtered 10,000 men of Edom in the Salt Valley. He captured Selah in the war, renamed it Yoktel as it is today. Then Amatzia sent messengers to uh, Joash, the son of Jehochaz, the son of Yehu, king of Israel, with this challenge. Come on, let's have it out, face to face. Joash, the king of Israel, sent this reply to Amatzia, king of Judah. Once in Lebanon, the thistle sent a message to the cedar. Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But a wild animal passed by the thistle and he squashed it. True, you've defeated Edom. So now you're ambitious. So enjoy the glory, but stay home. Why provoke calamity to your own ruin? Yours and Judah's too. But Amatzia wouldn't listen. So Yoash, the king of Israel, went up. And he and Amatzia, king of Judah, had it out, face to face, at Beit Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Joash, king of Israel, took Amatzia, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Akaziah, prisoner at Beit Shemesh. Then he went to Jerusalem, and he demolished the wall of Jerusalem between the gate of Ephraim and the corner gate, a section 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles he could find in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace and hostages. And then he returned to Shomron, to Samaria. Other activities of Yoash that he did, his power and how he fought Amatzia, king of Judah, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Yoash slept with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam took his place as king. Amatzia, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived another 15 years after the, after the death of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Other activities of Amatzia are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Now, because of a conspiracy formed against him in Jerusalem, Amatzia fled to Lachish, but they followed him to Lachish and killed him there. They brought his body back on horses and he was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took uh, Azariah at the age of 16 and made him king in the place of his father, Amatzia. Azariah recovered a lot for Judah and he rebuilt it. And after that the king Amatziah slept with his ancestors. It was in the 15th year of Amatzia the son of Joash, king of Judah, that Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Shomron, and he ruled for 41 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. He recovered the territory of Israel between the entrance of Hamat and the Sea of the Arabah in keeping with the word of Adonai, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gat Hefer. For Adonai saw how bitterly Israel had suffered, with no one left, either slave or free, no one coming to Israel's aid. Adonai did not threaten to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them. 
through Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Other activities of Jeroboam, all of his accomplishments, all of his power, how he conducted war, how he recovered Damasek, Damascus, and Hamath for Judah in Israel are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam slept with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah took his place as king. Well, after spending chapter 13 that deals with kings of the northern kingdom, in chapter 14 we once again switch back to Judah and to their kings. Thus the typical method is employed to synchronize this new king of Judah's reign to his counterpart up in the north, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash. Now this is the Joash who was the king of Judah, began his time on the throne when Joash, the king of Israel, was in his second year of ruling Israel. So, chronologically speaking, most of the information that we read about in chapter 13, including Elisha's death and burial, took place while Amaziah was sitting on the throne of Judah. Thus we have to intertwine chapter 14 with chapter 13 to get the overall picture. Now recall that King Joash of Judah had been assassinated after a 40-year reign that on balance was a reasonably righteous reign. His son Amatia, though, was a near-carbon copy of his father in both his vices and his virtues. One non-similarity was that while his father became king when he was only seven years old, Amatia was fully an adult of 25. So he was equipped right away to rule fairly effectively. Now to give us a kind of gauge of where this new king fit on God's scale of merit and righteousness, Amatia gets compared to David. And he doesn't measure up. While David was fiercely loyal to Jehovah and he was wholehearted, Amatia took after his father, Josh who seemingly had no strong inner convictions. But he ruled rather pragmatically, based on what seemed best to him at the time. The rabbis say that whatever part of the Torah that this father and son did observe, it was done mechanically and out of habit, and it lacked any sincerity. Well, verse 4 brings up this sticky matter of high places, Bamot, that obviously bothers God. In this context, these high places were essentially unauthorized private family altars, even though they were altars to Jehovah. These were not altars to pagan deities. I say unauthorized in the sense that the Lord had authorized only one place of sacrifice for His people. And that was at the temple in Jerusalem. But had this issue of Bamot, high places, arisen in the north of Israel, where the law of the land virtually outlawed the people from going to Jerusalem for temple sacrifice, then it might have been understandable that those who wished to worship Jehovah as closely and purely as was possible had little choice but to use their own private altars instead of going to those golden calf 
cult cities, or maybe they wouldn't have sacrificed at all, which would have been unthinkable since there would have been no means to atone for sins. The problem is, these particular high places we're reading about were in Judah, where the people were able to have easy access to the true temple of God. So their choice to use Bamot to sacrifice was nothing short of arrogance and stubborn pride directed against the Lord. Verse 6 explains that only after he had consolidated his power could Amatia act against those conspirators that had murdered his father. The reason that this took some time is likely because the rebellion against his father that ended in his assassination, well, it took some more time to put those rebels down who didn't necessarily want Joash's son to assume the throne. And there must have been enough dissent that Amatia had to not only quell the rebellion, but he now had to demonstrate that he was a worthy king. Well, once he did that, he rounded up and executed his father's killers. But the point is made that he did not kill their children, meaning their male children. This is unlike what was customary in the Middle East. And it was probably quite a welcome surprise to the common people of Israel. See, this passage goes so far as to explain that he did not kill the offspring of the murderers because he was following the law of Moses. And then goes on to more or less quote the passage which was referring to Deuteronomy 24.16 Fathers are not to be executed for their children nor children to be executed for their fathers. Every person will be executed for his own sin. So here we see that Amatia indeed had knowledge of the Torah. And he had a kind of a righteous side to him. Verse 7 begins a famous and important story about Amatia conquering the kingdom of Edom. Edom. Now we're going to stop here for today. Because we need to read 2 Chronicles chapter 25. That is a parallel account of this foray into Edom. And it also supplies some other helpful information about Amatia's reign that isn't present in 2 Kings 14. So we're going to start out then next week in 2 Chronicles.